0: Hello. You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the trade and globalization editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about wine. If you're an avid reader of The Economist, or if you've been following us on Twitter, that's at trade underscore underscore talks. How many
0: underscores? Two? That's two underscores, yeah. Okay, great.
1: Well, if if you're either one of those, you'll have seen evidence of a wine-related tariff protest that the trade talks team went to jobs. Tariffs, cost American, jobs. Tariffs, cost,
2: American Tariffs jobs. cost American jobs Tariffs cost American jobs Tariffs, Tariffs cost American jobs. jobs Tariffs cost American Tariffs
0: jobs, jobs. Tariffs cost To clear up any confusion, we were definitely reporting on the protest and not participating in the protest, although Chad's enthusiasm for for life makes it, you know, seem easy how how some people could have been confused.
1: <gasps> it w- it was pretty exciting. This was my very first tariff protest. So, so sure
0: um okay so so the protest was against the threat of a new and higher u.s tariffs on billions of dollars worth of products from the eu if these tariffs had come into effect they could have been as high as a hundred percent that was very alarming Uh, so this march happened on sunday february the 9th and on february 14th valentine's day A bunch of people following this were bracing themselves for tariffs. Now, to to give the kind of plot spoiler, the tariffs did not come in a form that was as extreme as as had been threatened. And my husband would like to personally thank Robert Lighthizer for that, as it meant that we could have dinner together.
1: But if you somehow think that this isn't still a story, I'm gonna try to convince you that you're wrong. So first of all, there are still tariffs on wine, and there may still be more coming in the future. But the second really big reason is that the wine industry is just really, really weird.
0: Weird is interesting. So let us start with the backstory of this dispute. These tariffs are basically a punishment or in one case a deterrent for a couple of things that the, the EU has done and is, is threatening to do. So so one was that the French had been planning to apply a digital services tax and, and the US was upset. That didn't actually end up happening, although I suppose it, it, it could come back um, imminently. The other thing that they've done is that for a long time, various EU member states have given subsidies to Airbus, which is this big European aircraft manufacturer.
1: And it's worth pointing out that on this on the second dispute, the, the WTO dispute over airplanes, the Trump administration is basically within its rights to do this. So the United States sued the European Union at the WTO It won its case, and it was actually authorized by the WTO to retaliate with higher tariffs. And so these sorts of tariffs are the ones that are sanctioned by the the multilateral trading system. So as far as tariffs go, they are the good kind of tariffs, if there are such a thing.
0: Okay, so we we have this authorised tariff retaliation, and it's it's been coming for years and years. And and the USTR had been preparing for this moment. In April of 2019, they proposed a list of products to hit, mostly from the four countries that, that had given subsidies to Airbus, the Airbus Consortium. Um, and, and so they were the UK, Germany, France, and Spain. The list of products included things like airplanes. That was probably the biggest ticket item. But also jumpers, um, cheeses, manchego. I was very, very concerned about that. Handbags, beauty products, and of course, wine.
1: The official authorization for the retaliation came on October 14th. And on October 18th, the United States imposed the tariffs. 10% tariffs on Airbus airplanes themselves and 25% tariffs on a bunch of other products, including wine. And those tariffs hit over a billion dollars worth of wine, in particular from one country in Europe, and that's France.
0: As we heard at the protest, for some importers, this was a pretty nasty shock. Could you introduce
3: yourself? Hi, I'm Andrea. I work with Corso Selections, we're a French importer based out of Chicago.
0: Okay. Um, so, how? Tell tell me about the business. Like, how, how big is it? So, our business is pretty small.
3: We're a total of eight people. We work with importers around the country, or distributors around the country, um, and we import only French wine. So, the original round of tariffs really hit us hard in October. We had two containers on the water when the tariffs went into effect, so that means they landed 25% more expensive than we had anticipated.
0: (laughs) How much time did you have to pay the tariffs?
3: You have to pay them before they're released. So you have to pay the tariffs before you can get your wine released from port. Between October with the containers that we had on the water and what we brought in, which was fairly minimal before that or after that, we spent over forty thousand dollars in tariffs. That's a lot of money for a small company to to take on.
0: Now, I, I want to talk about, you know, small businesses in particular because, you know, that is a lot of money for a small business. It's cash that they could be using to do other things like like buying more inventory or or investing in, in new relationships or just, you know, doing the things that that businesses do. If you're small in particular, that means that you may not have very much power relative to others in the supply chain. Maybe your bigger competitors, maybe they're more diversified, maybe they can they can take the hit of the tariffs more easily. Maybe maybe they can spread the costs across more products and, and therefore avoid raising prices and, and losing business.
1: Maybe at this point we should step back and do some basic US wine industry 101. So first the product. Wine comes from fermenting grapes.
0: And adding value here on Trade Talks.
1: And it can sometimes take somewhere between three and five years between when you first put the seeds in the ground and ultimately put the bottle of wine on the table. So that's just to say that it takes a long time for the supply to be able to respond if there's changes out there in the market. Now, in America, we grow a lot of grapes, especially in California, that are turned into wine. But Americans also import a lot of wine from Chile, Australia, South Africa, and the EU, and especially France.
0: The EU sells around $5 billion worth of wine to the US each year. I spoke to Chris Bitter of of Vintage Economics, um, which is a market research company, um, and he told me that imports from the EU account for about 17% of the market by by volume. That's just kind of bottles of wine. But about 27% of the market by value. So basically, that that suggests that wine from the EU tends to be the fancier, more expensive stuff.
1: Now, if you're in America and you want to import wine... It's not a simple process. You need to go to the federal government and and get a permit. But even before that, you're going to have to go overseas and form relationships with wineries in other countries and make sure they're going to be able to ship you new bottles of wine. And you're probably going to have to lock in prices well before you actually start to import this wine from other countries.
0: You're also going to have to deal with the super weird supply chain inside America, Now, maybe this is just something that all Americans know about, but I definitely did not. Alcohol regulations here are crazy, basically. Everything varies by state. Some states will not let you ship wine directly to customers. It is a felony to send alcohol to a customer in Utah directly.
1: And so, yes, for Americans, we all know this dates back to the early 20th century. So basically, in 1920, the American government thought it would be a really good idea to ban the sale of alcohol. So this was America's period of prohibition. So think Al Capone, bootleggers, gangsters, and all those crazy stories, movies that that sort of came out of that era. And in 1933, the American government decided, actually, maybe that's not such a good idea. And they finally repealed that ban on alcohol sales.
0: Okay. So, w- so when they repealed this ban, I guess you will learn this in alcohol class. Um, when, when they repealed it, rather than set some common federal alcohol rules, they decided to let states decide for themselves. And so basically you ended up with what is a bit of a mess. And in most places there is what is called a three-tier distribution system. So there are these three tiers. The first tier is importers or producers. The second tier is is distributors. And the third tier, you actually sell to customers, right? So so that's how you, the consumer, you get your one from the third tier.
1: And so this third tier is restaurants, retail stores, things like that. These are the three tiers we're going to focus on. And so the laws make it so that you actually have to go through this three-tier system if you're a wine producer, you can't go straight to this third tier, straight to the customer, the restaurant or the store. You have to go through a distributor.
0: Now th- there are some exceptions, but you know the key thing is that when you talk to the the kinds of people that I've been talking to, who are mostly, I guess, you know, small small importers, they they dislike this three tier system.
1: I think I can work out why they don't like it. Obviously, this weird system does do strange things to the the economics of the wine market. It's going to mean that there's going to be markups at each of the three stages, so three sets of people taking a cut of potential profits that we're talking about here. One person said, you don't join the wine industry to get rich. But it also happens that over the last few decades, there's been consolidation in the market at the distributor level, so this very middle stage. And so basically, there are fewer people going around to distribute your wine, and those people then are going to have a lot more power.
0: Okay, so that's wine industry 101. So back to the tariffs and the protests. Okay, so so full disclosure, this is really us telling the, you know, the story of some of the, the smaller companies that that we met who seemed super vocal and and upset about these tariffs.
1: And we should say in general in in international trade that it's a it's a pretty standard result that smaller companies trade less than the bigger ones. It looks like there's just something really hard about trade that makes it difficult for small companies to get over the hump and and access foreign markets. And so it's probably not too much of a stretch to say that the little guys here are going to be particularly vulnerable to tariff shocks.
0: Let's go back to to these hearings back in in May of 2019. This is when the USDR was preparing its list for for which products it would hit with tariffs. So if you look at the the transcript of those hearings – the the small wine importers are not really there. There are a couple of bigger lobby groups, and they mention wine. So there's the National Association of Beverage Importers and, and the National Retail Federation. But they really only mention wine in passing.
1: And if you think about it, this makes sense. If you're a small importer, you might not be keeping track of tariff stuff like this. You may have seen these threats and just dismissed them as, as not a real thing. But it also means that when the 25% tariffs arrived in in October, they were a really nasty shock, and you you may have just been unprepared. And what it looks like is that a bunch of people just really weren't aware that these tariffs were on the table back in May.
0: Now, by October, some people definitely were aware because you you can you can tell from the trade data now wine imports are seasonal the big the busiest months are september and october because importers are bringing in everything for the for the holiday season so normally there's a bit of a drop from october to november as they're basically done doing that and and this most recent year if you remember the the tariffs came on october 18th if you look at the wines affected by the tariffs, the drop between October and November was bigger than normal. So normally it's about you know 10 to 20 percent in terms of the value of wine. This time the drop was 30 uh, percent month on month. So it, so it looks like some people did try to bring in wine earlier, you know, before the tariffs went on.
1: But still, a lot of wine did get hit with these tariffs when the when they came on in October. And then in January, there was a separate hearing, this time about that potential retaliation against France in the digital services tax dispute, this separate dispute that the United States has going on with Europe. This time, the standard wines that were hit with the retaliation in October, they weren't on the, the new tariff list, but French champagne was.
0: So, basically, what happens is a ton of people from the wine industry show up and and they they complain. they they complain about this threat of the champagne tariffs, but they also use it as a platform to complain about the tariffs that they have already been hit with. there was There was one woman called Mary Taylor from Mary Taylor Wines. She gives a super fiery testimony asking, you know, "How can you just gut my family business?" Um when I spoke to her afterwards, she she told me that she'd paid fifty thousand dollars in tariffs.
1: So now let's do some tariffs 101. Suppose you're one of these importers and you get a a tariff bill, you know, the $50,000 that you have to pay. As an importer, you have three options. You could just take it out of your profits. But if you haven't got enough profits, some of your prices are going to have to change. You could try to persuade the people that you're buying the wine from in the foreign country to lower their prices. But remember, you agreed to those prices quite a while ago, and, and they may not be willing to do so. Your other option is you can try to raise prices to those middlemen that you're selling your wine to, those distributors.
0: And then eventually those price rises could you know, make it through to the consumer. OK, so if you look at the aggregate price data for wine in the U.S. and you kind of squinted it, you look at it really hard, it's really difficult to see any price increases at the consumer level. We we cannot claim that these tariffs have been passed through Consumers, kind of obviously. A few weeks ago, I spoke to Christopher Lombardo from from Ibis World, which is a market research company, and he told me that actually, so far, the importers had had picked up the bill. They had been the ones paying the tariffs, but you know, he emphasised that that particularly for the smaller guys, this this was not a sustainable financial situation.
1: And for those wine importers. The explanation for that is your your ability to change prices is going to depend on the sensitivity of both your suppliers and your customers to those prices. And so suppose your supplier in France can get a great price for their stuff by selling it in some other country instead of the United States, like Japan. It's going to be hard to convince that French supplier to stick with you and take a price cut. Why should they? They've got other options. For your customers, these these distributors in the United States, suppose they can pick between your wine that you're importing, this expensive French stuff, or a cheaper one from, say, New Zealand. You may want to raise prices to them, but they're not going to respond well if they've got this other option.
0: Maybe they know that consumers are just going to switch away if, if they're presented with more expensive wine. And so the the more fickle they are the the less likely you are to see to see price increases. Now if you read through the transcripts of the hearings in January, this is the one that that was about the French champagne but also, you know, became about other stuff too. You can see these importers basically pleading with the USTR to to try and persuade them that they really shouldn't put on these tariffs because they would really hurt Americans. And and you can also, read the USTR officials push back. You can you can see them asking, "Well, you know, can't people switch? Are these wines really so special that people just couldn't couldn't switch to a different product?" And so, at this point, I would like to give a shout out to to some of the arguments that were presented. There was one lawyer who said, "quote Consumers hold personal preferences that are subjective and deserve to be respected by trade negotiators." you know, really, really bold going for that argument. I'm not sure it's going to persuade Bob Lighthizer.
1: I don't think so. Now, some people who really know about wine, they're going to completely reject this idea that wines are substitutes for one another. Here's Eric Segelbaum. He's a sommelier that we met at the tariff protest. He's an expert on wines.
2: So if you have to go from Washington DC to LA and you have the option to fly or take the Greyhound, would you accept the argument that, well, you're ending up in LA anyway, so I'm going to put you on the bus and it doesn't matter? They're not the same products. It's not just an easy trade-off. Yes, there are other countries outside of the EU that are champing at the bit to get in and fill the void. But as much as I love Argentinian wine, for instance, an Argentine Malbec cannot replace uh, $9 Prosecco or a Chianti you know these these wine regions they are what they are because of where they are you can plant Sangiovese the grape of Chianti in the United States or in Argentina or in Australia or in South Africa but it won't be the same it won't taste the same so it kind of be like well a car is a car so you can drive this this you know 1982 Datsun or you can drive this 2018 BMW they're cars so who cares it's all the same thing it's not so there's just no trade-off
0: I guess I guess okay so so reading through all these different testimonies I I spotted in some places a bit of an inconsistency now if there if there really is no substitute for your product then you really should be able to raise the price and people will just buy it anyway so maybe a tariff won't matter that much I, I did put this to Eric and and he said he wasn't worried so much about people switching to other wines that were different as he was about them not being able to afford the wine at all. Now, this protest was about tariffs maybe going up to 100%. So, so there, yes, perhaps affordability might, might be more of an, an issue.
1: I think more generally on the consumer side, how price sensitive you are is also maybe going to depend on who you are. And so some people think of maybe the the French restaurants here – They're going to stick with French bottles of wine no matter what, even if they're more expensive. This is just what's on their menu. But other people who aren't that picky, they're just going to buy whatever costs $10, wherever it's from.
0: I spoke to Kim Anderson, who is a wine economist. uh, And he had actually gone out and and tried to estimate the effect of this 25% tariff on, on the wine market, on the global wine market. And and he found that yeah that there would be some trade diversion internationally there is some substitutability between wines. And he told me that that. Wine from New Zealand was a closer substitute to European wine than Australian wine, so that the New Zealand stuff seems to be slightly um, more expensive. and And he actually estimated overall, though, that that there would also be a, a depressive effect on on trade. He he predicted that the effect of the the 25% tariff would be to reduce wine trade by 1.6%.
1: And so that trade diversion result, Americans buying less wine from France, maybe more from New Zealand, that's for the whole market. But going back to those small businesses, though, it's really going to be hard for some of them to make these kinds of switches. Here's Andrea again.
3: It's its not that easy to diversify. You have to, it's a huge investment. You have to go there. You have to find growers that are producing wine that you feel confident in representing that aren't represented by somebody else. And um you know, that's a really hard and, and lengthy process. So you can't just go, oh, tomorrow I'm going to import New Zealand wine and find a portfolio full of New Zealand or Australian wine and, and fill a container. Um, you know, it takes years to build these kinds of businesses and you can't just pivot on a dime and completely change what you're doing.
1: One thing that struck me was how those dynamics could play out along this wine supply chain. So suppose you're one of these few small distributors that's, that's left out there, the guys in the middle between the importer and the stores. These distributors are, are more reliant on importers, and you're not going to find it easy to say no when they say they need to raise their prices. As a small distributor, basically you also are going to be more vulnerable to these kinds of tariffs. At the march, I spoke to Guy Harris. Guy had actually flown in from Seattle. He was the one carrying 200 signs that all said, stop the tariffs. We have pictures. We'll tweet them out again. And he's a distributor. About half of his wine comes from Europe, and the other half he buys from American wineries, so local American production. Uh, I'm Guy Harris. I have an import uh, distribution company in Seattle uh, called Crew Selections. Uh, I asked him whether these tariffs on Europe might be good for some of the U.S. wineries that he buys from. There's that theory. Um, but if they, they need distributors as well. And if their distributor doesn't exist anymore, it's going to be hard for them. Um, and that's really the bottom line, you know, and it's they're not the same. You know. So
0: over the past couple of years, I have heard a lot of anecdotes about how small businesses have been hit particularly hard by all manner of tariffs. And I think it's a very interesting research question out there. I would, I would love to see some more economic research about it.
1: Economists, grab your data packages and start running some regressions. For now, I can just offer some more anecdotal evidence. And at the march, it really did feel like it was difficult for these small businesses to, to organize, to be able to push back against the tariffs. We heard about how people in this wine industry had made a Facebook group and I think the event organizers expected quite a few people to show up because of, because of that. When you told me that we were going to the march, I actually went to the march website and, and Kevin Rapp, who organized it, was clearly trying to build a coalition of industries here. It was pitched as all of the products that were hit by those, those retaliatory tariffs in October, the cheeses, the olives, the sweaters, the binoculars, and these wines. But in the end, the only people that we found at the march were the wine people. I think the point here is just how hard it is to build a coalition, certainly across industries, even when you're all fighting the same thing.
0: But, you know, this could have been just because organizing anything is difficult. Organizing takes resources. It's not clear that those were there. People want to do other stuff on on Sunday mornings. They might have been skeptical that the marching was going to make a difference, given that there had already been these public hearings. So, you know, maybe we shouldn't be too hard on you know small businesses in the wine industry for not you know creating a a mass movement that that brought people to the streets
1: i I agree with that there were though a couple of other interesting things from the march that, that struck me one was that there was actually someone there from the california wine institute and so this is a lobby group representing a lot of california vineyards and what's interesting is they had issued a joint statement with with What's basically their arch rivals, so the the European equivalent, the Europeans' main wine lobby group, jointly calling for zero tariffs on on both sides. Basically, these California growers are worried about, I think, the the effects of retaliation. And so they know that they're going to be the ones on the front line if the Europeans ever choose to retaliate against the United States in some other dispute. But the other main takeaway for me from the march was this more general point that everyone we spoke to... Everyone there was concerned about jobs. I didn't talk to anyone who was worried about their favorite brand of wine becoming unavailable or, or more expensive. And so basically in the political economy of all of this, what we see is that jobs matter. Consumers, they just don't tend to notice these things.
0: Yeah. So coming away from that much, I, I didn't feel particularly optimistic. I didn't think that it was necessarily going to change many minds within the Trump administration. And I also thought that the USTR was probably going to do something on on Valentine's Day, and that would have been really, really difficult for, for lots of the people I had spoken to. Here's Andrea
3: hundred percent tariff would put us out of business period we would be done there there's you cannot take a and and it would be even more of a price increase in this, but you can't take a20 dollar wine and then all of a sudden start selling it for above $40. Um, We work with small growers. These are not huge businesses that make just tons and tons of wines. We work with small farmers, small growers that they can't afford to eat this cost. We can't afford to eat this cost. Um, And the fact of the matter is they have options to sell it elsewhere. They don't have to import to the U.S. They want to import to the U.S., but they don't have to. They can go to other countries in the EU and import or export. They can go to China and export.
1: So what did happen on February 14th is the USTR put out a statement. They said that the tariffs on airplanes that were at 10 percent, they were going to go up to 15 percent on March 18th. So there was going to be a tariff increase there. But they did take off some tariffs. They took tariffs off $350,000 worth of prune juice from France and they added tariffs to $13,000 worth of butcher knives from France and Germany. But that was it. No Italian wine tariffs and no tariff increases on all that French wine that everybody else was worried about.
0: The statement did make sure to say, though, that that could change. Tariffs on those products could still rise, especially if the EU retaliated against the U.S., perhaps as part of this separate dispute going on, where basically the EU has sued the U.S. over its subsidies of of Boeing, which is the big American aircraft manufacturer. It's complaining about things including a tax break given by Washington state.
1: And there was also a little bit of news on, on that this week. In something of a twist, on February 19th, Washington state just introduced some new legislation that would actually remove at least some of the tax breaks that Boeing has received. And this is important because in May or maybe June, we're expecting a a WTO decision that might authorize the Europeans to retaliate against the United States if the United States is found to still be giving these sort of subsidies to Boeing.
0: Boeing has come out in favor of ending the subsidies, probably because they're worried about facing European retaliation on their sales to European carriers. They've, They've got a lot of problems right now, so they don't want another one. But, you know, we'll see. I think this is a very very long saga and it is not over yet. And so I think if you are importing or just you know trading between the US and the EU, you should be you know worried about being caught up in it further.
1: So in conclusion, if you like wine and particularly if you like European wine, you should be watching this space.
0: Okay, so before we go, I have a confession, which I think is is a good confession, right? Because it means that I'm not conflicted, right? Because I don't I basically don't really care from a consumer standpoint because I don't I don't really like wine. I don't like wine.
1: You're a neutral arbiter in all of this. Exactly.
0: Okay, great. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Kim Anderson at the University of Adelaide, Chris Bitter of Vintage Economics, Christopher Lombardo from Ibis World.
1: And thanks also to everyone we spoke to at the One America March. And that includes Andrea Wallace at Corso Selections, Eric Segelbaum at Sommelier LLC, Kevin Rapp at Rapp Wine, and Guy Harris at Crew Solutions.
0: Thanks to Mary Taylor of Mary Taylor Wines, Ben Aniff of Tribeca Wines, and everyone else who I've I've forgotten as we record this. I'm a terrible human.
1: <laughs> and it's not because she's drunk, because she doesn't like wine. And thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy.
0: To follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samea Kane
1: And I'm at Chad Bown.
0: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one, but two underscores at trade underscore, underscore talks, because when it comes to anti-tariff marches, two sectors showing up at the march would have been better than one.